Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. K Pasa Mufasa, Jeff Chilton, founder and president of Namex. What an honor to host you on the Mycopreneur Podcast. How are things today in your corner of the Mycoverse, Jeff? Muchas gracias para tenerme en tu podcast. It's great to be here. I, I really appreciate it, Dennis. It's, it's uh, wonderful to talk to you, wonderful to talk to somebody who also is knowledgeable about fungi. So this is going to be fun. Well, you're in good company because the audience also is very passionate about fungi. And that's why they've all stuck with me so far. So thank you all for listening in today. We're going to unpack some of the extraordinary and inspiring mycopreneurial career of Jeff today. But before we get to the present moment and the international trade deals and the accolades and all that, I've got to ask you, Jeff, what first got you into mushrooms? And did you immediately know that this was your life calling? Or did that unfold over an unforeseen series of events? Okay, I don't tell this story to everybody. <laughs> I was in, in Phoenix, Arizona in high school in the early 60s. In 1964, a friend of mine went to Mexico to Mexico City to University of the Americas. Oh, man, I was so jealous. I wanted so badly to go down there. I was studying Spanish in high school. Oh, he comes back after that, and he has a story about eating magic mushrooms. <laughs> and I'm like, what? That is amazing. And that just stuck with me. And I was just like, wow. And, and believe it or not, in 1964, we were just starting to learn about smoking a little pot. And, and, and it was a very small group. It was very secret, secret society. And so, you know, that when I went on to university, of course, we're talking about the 60s. So Dennis, come on, what do you do? It's the 60s. So we're not drinking as much. We are, are toking more. And things like mushrooms and other psychoactives are a big part of that. So that's kind of where it all began. And then, of course, look, I, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. It's, it's the perfect climate for mushrooms, right? So they were around me, and, and because of that, we could get out and wild mushrooming. And I, I took a mycology course at the university while I was there. I studied anthropology. My whole thing with anthropology was mushroom-focused, um, mushrooms used for medicinal purposes, mushrooms used in shamanic rites. So... You know, it was kind of that whole period that formed my life going forward. Sure. And I have a similar background in that it was psychoactive fungi and psilocybin mushrooms that really sucked me into the whole mushroom universe, as I think it is for a lot of people. Because growing up in San Diego, 
mushrooms were button mushrooms that come on your pizza and you pick them off or you know they're at the salad bar and they're all slimy and then I went to University of San Francisco so kind of had the legacy of the hate street days and all that and USF is right next to Golden Gate Park and the hate I had some prior experience with limited amounts of magic mushrooms before that but that blew the floodgates open and I started seeing all the overlap between the arts and the culture and the tech and it just it kind of fused everything for me and that's launched a lifelong journey of inquiry that I'm very fortunate to still be on today so you got into mushrooms through the 60s and by the way I think 64 was when the Beatles may have released their debut LP and broken America around then so the number of pot smokers decidedly started to grow after that I believe but what got you into cultivating after university was 1971 and I, I decided that I wanted to go to Mexico and pursue my mushroom uh, interest. So I, I moved to, to uh, Mexico and I, I lived in Oaxaca for a year and a half. And during that period, I was up in the, in the mountains, uh, Wautla and other places, because I, I knew all these places because I had read all of the information from Gordon Wasson. In fact, you know, Gordon Wasson, uh, as you know, he and his wife were the ones that came down to Mexico in the 50s and actually rediscovered the mushrooms growing up in the mountains of, uh, of Oaxaca. And so I knew about all those places. I knew about his, his journey down here. I was very familiar with all that. So I was just down there kind of following that track. And, and, but when I got back from Mexico, I mean, look, I, I was in, living in Mexico on $5 a day at most. <laughs> it was, I was hitchhiking all around and it was just a wonderful time. Very free and easy and I, I love Mexico. I love the people down here. They're so friendly. You know, you get picked up hitchhiking by all sorts of different people. They're stopping somewhere. They're buying you lunch, or dinner, you name it. It's just, it was really a wonderful time. But you get back and I'm like, I've got a degree in anthropology. What am I going to do with it? And, and so I go to my mycology professor at the University of Washington and I ask, I say, you know what, I, I've been reading about growing mushrooms. It, it would be really great. What do you think? And he goes, hey, he said, there's a mushroom farm 60 miles down the road in Olympia, Washington. I, I know the owner. He says, go down there. I, I, good chance you can get a job. I went down. I applied for the job. I got the job. I was there for the next 10 years on a very large agaricus farm. Now, now look, agaricus, as you know, is the button mushroom. We're growing 2 million pounds a year, but we had a Japanese scientist there. Or the Japanese scientist, Dr. Ariyama, he was growing shiitake, he was growing enoki taki, and he was growing oyster mushroom. And, and it, in my capacity there as a production manager at a certain point, I was working with him on these projects. So I got to learn about how to grow other species of mushrooms. I was eating fresh shiitake in the 70s. Can you imagine? So, so for me, it was like an amazing time. And that really kicked off my whole career as a mushroom grower. I, I mean, look, when you're on a large scale mushroom farm, uh, you literally are living with mushrooms. And we had uh, probably about 40 different rooms in every stage of production because it's on a cropping cycle, 90-day cropping cycle. So let's just say five houses get dumped, five new houses get put in, 90-day cycle. And, and, and you know what's interesting about mushroom growing is 
mushrooms do not sleep. <laughs> you know, it's like a plant. If a plant doesn't stop growing, uh, mushrooms don't sleep. They don't stop growing. You have to be there every single day of the year to harvest the mushrooms. Because if you don't, you get a whole day's worth of mushrooms, tens of thousands of pounds, that mature, and now you've got a second instead of a first. So this is really something about mushroom growing that a lot of people don't understand. And, you know, how many people, maybe you could ask, I ask people all the time, well, have you ever been to a mushroom farm? I don't know, one out of a hundred has said yes. Nobody knows or has been to a mushroom farm unless maybe they live in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania or something like that, where it's a huge, massive industry. But otherwise, you just drive right by because the mushrooms are all being grown indoors in large warehouses that are climate controlled and keep everything at an optimum temperature so that you're getting the maximum yield. So at any rate, for me, that was uh, a major period in my life. In the 70s, God, Dennis, in the 70s was such an exciting time for mushrooms. There were mushroom conferences that we were we were creating and um, where we would have uh, people like Wasson would be at some of these, Richard Evans Schultes would be at some of these, uh, Andrew Weil. At one of these conferences, there was actually Albert Hofmann was there. So the 70s was an amazing time. And the other part of the 70s was, you know, in the 60s, there was a, a man named Carlos Castaneda. He wrote a bunch of books about Don Juan, a Yaqui a shaman. And that everybody was just like, oh, my God, I want to go and find my own Don Juan. <laughs> so so that's why a lot of people went to Mexico looking for their Don Juan. Just like today, a lot of people go to the Amazon looking for their shaman to take you on this, this vision quest. But one of the things that happened was that during the 70s, we realized that psilocybe mushrooms actually grew in North America too, as well as worldwide. So coming back to the Pacific Northwest, we have psilocybe semilanciata. We learn about psilocybe cyanescens, baocystis, all of these local species. During that period, you had hundreds of people out in the pastures in the Pacific Northwest, head down, looking for Psilocybe semilanciata. It was such an interesting time. And, and so, so that was kind of like, instead of having to go to Mexico looking for mushrooms, no, you, they were right in your backyard. You know, the story you're telling about going down to Oaxaca, I can really relate to that in that in 2010, I went on a road trip with some college friends. I was, it was after my junior year of college at USF, and we drove from Oaxaca to Costa Rica. Well, I was waiting for them for a few days in Oaxaca before they got there, and by the time they came, I realized, hey, we're only a colectivo ride or like a minibus ride away from Maria Sabina's village, from Huatla de Jimenez. And I think by that point, the fervor around Huautla had died down because nobody seemed to have it on the map, uh, at least from what I could tell. So we jumped in a colectivo, went up 
to the mountain town and just started asking questions. And sure enough, someone jumped in the car and said, I'll take you to the house, the family house. And I haven't shared this story yet on the podcast. So we rolled up to the house, just said, hey, we're, we're here. How's everything going with all y'all? They were really cool. Uh, Philo, her nephew, I believe, maybe it's her son, invited us to stay for dinner and then he invited us to stay for the night. So we spent two nights at the Sabina household with her surviving family and I got to be in that small room where she was conducting the veladas and the ceremonies and I saw the original Life magazine cover with her on it or with Wasson that they had propped up and they actually invited me to be part of a velada, part of a ceremony and Funny enough, you know, I had never had mushrooms and honey up until that point, and mostly I'd had dried mushrooms, so I didn't quite know what to expect, but they had the copal incense, and they were, you know, her nephew was chanting, and about two or three hours went by, a long time went by, and nothing happened. Pretty much we all decided, I guess we didn't take enough, it didn't work, we're going to go back to our room where we're sleeping, and so we hung out. In the middle of the night, I got awoken in a full-on magnificent visionary state and it lasted the entire night and I had just profound visionary activity and then in the morning the other guys were like man I can't believe those mushrooms didn't work and I was I was sitting there like yeah yeah they they didn't work but it was so awesome because you know and I've had this conversation with other folks on the podcast like we we really don't know how these things work because that doesn't make sense it was about a seven hour delayed uh, effect that it had on me as opposed to the traditional you eat mushrooms and then an hour later you're on the way up and then you peak it was a totally different timeline and I just have a great reverence for that mystery and for all of what that family did and what they're continuing to do in Huatla so I just wanted to share that story that is so interesting because uh, I was back in Wautla in, I think it was 2002 or 2003. And uh, of course, Maria Sabina, I think she died in, in the 90s or something like that. And she was over 90 years old, which was really interesting. When you think of, here's a woman who took very large amounts of mushrooms most of her life. And obviously, who knows, maybe it was something that prolonged her life because I mean look in those mountains the conditions living conditions there are not good hygiene is not good uh, the fact that you can live to be 90 and living in those mountains is really pretty amazing but but we were there in 2002 my, my wife and I and we knew about a woman who was there that was a uh, curandere her name was Doña Julieta and we had a velada with her and, and it was just quite uh, amazing and and the she had an altar set up that was just absolutely full of fresh cut flowers she had icons on there and then of course uh, candlelight and things like that it was really quite a a very special night for us but but you know the fact that you actually went up there and and here is what kind of happened too, and I don't know how many people are actually aware of this, but in the 1960s, so many people had gone up to Wautla and, and were wandering around in Wautla, uh, very high on mushrooms. So many people were doing that, that they actually closed it off, Dennis. They put soldiers on all the entrances uh, down below Wautla because it was a long uh, trip back up into the mountains to get there. They put soldiers there to keep people out and they went in to the Wautla area and they 
collected every single gringo that was there, uh, pulled them out and deported them. And Woutla was then closed off to the general public or especially to foreigners for a period of maybe 15 years or so. Literally soldiers out on the roads going in. And so when we were back there in 2002, by that time, they're actually having mushroom festivals in Woutla. And Maria Sabina is now uh, like the patron saint and very famous. She's gone, but very famous. And there was nothing more than three Mexican hippies in town. In town, Everybody else in the world had completely forgotten about it. And, and, and in my mind, that was very a very positive thing because literally in the late 60s, it just got completely overrun with very disrespectful people, unfortunately. And, and the other thing that happens anthropologically in these situations is when people come in like that, all of a sudden they're coming in with money and the mushrooms become a saleable commodity, which uh, it hurts the whole cultural aspect of it and also sets up this dynamic where some people are getting wealthy on the basis of selling mushrooms to foreigners. So, so it was not a very good situation, ultimately, what happened there. But we were sort of reaching a point uh, in our culture in the North where uh, communication was such that this information was out. And especially after the 1957 A Life magazine article, many people haven't seen that. Amazing article. I love to talk about it because uh, in that article or on the cover of Life magazine, which was basically a coffee table magazine with human interest stories, on the cover of it they had they had a series called Great Adventures, and it was Great Adventures 3 or 4 or something. Mushrooms that cause visions <laughs> discovered in Mexico. And, and it was like, isn't this interesting? <laughs> Can you imagine something like that being published in the 70s? No, no. It would have been mushrooms that cause visions creating havoc in some place somewhere. But no, this was like, isn't that interesting? And I'm just like, man, was that ever an innocent time? Sure. I was surprised when I went up. I didn't see a single other gringo or a single hippie. I think I must have hit it after the fervor died down because we went up there and I didn't see another traveler and they seemed very happy to welcome us. And they asked us for $3 a night to stay in Maria Sabina's room where she used to stay. So I, that's a story I'll always treasure and uh, never told it on the podcast before. And I don't even love to go into details just because it was so personally meaningful and I'm, I'm holding on to it. But I want to shift gears a bit because I love talking mushrooms and travel. It's one of my favorite intersections and I've been very fortunate to travel all over the planet and learn a lot about different people working with mushrooms in different capacities. I grew up hosting exchange students from all over the planet, many from the former Soviet Union, you know, from Ukraine, from Poland, uh, mycophilic cultures. We had students from Brazil. So that 
gave gave me an opportunity to travel later and stay with some of these families. And, you know, the more I've traveled, the more, well, the more I see, the less I know, but I learn more about fungi and how people use them. So the first time and only time I've been to China was in 2006 for three weeks. And I had a magnificent eye-opening experience there. We were in uh, Beijing. I rode the toboggan down from the Great Wall, Xi'an, kind of like pretty typical tourist route. We went to Lijiang and Yangshuo, which were two of my favorites because they were gorgeous. Lijiang is an amazing place. I mean, the foothills of Tibet, this old ancient village there uh, with this, this small creek running through the middle of it and cobblestones and stone houses. Lijiang is a favorite place of mine, too. I have this image seared into my mind walking through those cobblestone streets you mentioned near the riverfront in Lijiang, and I saw what later I construed to be a rishi mushroom vendor who had a, a, a bundle on his back, and it looked like these big conks of rishi mushrooms. And it just was this image that was very... anachronistic like it didn't seem to belong to the 21st century it seemed to be something from you know 100 or 200 years ago or more and I remember trying to chase this guy down because at that point in my life I had tried psilocybin mushrooms once and had an extraordinary experience so I was like they know something here that guy's got a bunch of mushrooms I didn't know they were rishi at the time but I could identify that there was something going on and I, I lost him in the hustle and the bustle but that image is seared into my mind and Years later, I've come to learn how advanced the Chinese mushroom culture is, and especially in comparison to the West in terms of the the fact that it's my understanding that there are preschool through Ph.D. level fungi-centric education opportunities available. You can buy cordyceps in markets that are grown on different substrates, so on and so forth. There's this historic legacy, as you're well aware, and it's very commonly accepted and used by people in China. And now the West is starting in other countries. We've got listeners in Australia, India, Europe. Shout out to all of you. People are starting to catch up with this. So I'm curious, you first got to China. What are some of the impressions you first had when you went over there? And how have those impressions changed after cultivating mushrooms and living in China? My first trip to China was in 1989. And that was for an international congress on mushroom science. And one of the amazing things about China, with that population, they have hundreds and hundreds of mushroom scientists. So all through the 90s, I traveled extensively in China, and I went to conferences. I visited research institutes. I visited farms that were growing mushrooms. I visited processors. And, you know, think about this for a second. In the United States, we have one university in the United States that has a department for uh, mushroom cultivation uh, uh, and, and sort of a mushroom nutritional aspects of mushrooms. No, that's Penn State University because of the large mushroom industry they have there. Back in the 70s when I was growing mushrooms commercially, they had maybe 12 or 15 scientists there working in that field. Um, today, they have maybe two or three scientists at Penn State, whereas in China, they've got, I mean, not just universities, but these research stations all over China. They have hundreds of scientists working on mushroom cultivation. And so from 1989 through today, China went from producing approximately, let's just say, 30% of the world's mushrooms 
1989. Today they produce 85% of the world's cultivated mushrooms. Think about that for a second, 85%. So, so, so it was so rich, and that's one of the reasons that I, I went there was because, look, if you're, if you're interested in medicinal mushrooms, that's where they've been used for thousands of years in China, in traditional Chinese medicine. So that's where the reservoir of information was, including traditional Chinese practitioners, including uh, mushroom farmers, mushroom scientists, all of the different uh, um, conferences I went to. I met so many interesting people, and it took me um, all to all parts of China. Like we were talking about Li Zhang, which is in Yunnan province. Yunnan province had a, a great research station there, and also they harvest tons and tons and tons of wild mushrooms every year that they ship out all over the world. So it's a center of wild mushrooming. That was, that was interesting to me. But, you know, here, here's what's, what I learned as a mushroom grower in the United States at the mushroom farm. Uh, when you're growing mushrooms, remember, every mushroom you've ever eaten has been harvested by hand. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that. There, there's, okay, today they've got a couple of mechanical harvesting machines in Europe but this is like something for a very specific type of system. Every mushroom you've ever eaten in the United States has been picked by hand. That means you have an army of harvesters that have to go into those houses every single day to harvest those mushrooms. So growing mushrooms in the United States or Canada, you can do that and you can make a profit selling those fresh. But... <laughs> supplements are dried powders. As you know, a mushroom is 90% plus water. Like most vegetables, you dry out that shiitake that you've been getting, let's just say, $5 a pound for. Now you have to get $50 a pound for that same shiitake. The economics do not work in North America for growing mushrooms and putting them into the supplement market. Absolutely, you cannot do it, and there are no mushrooms grown in the United States that are being used as supplements, with the exception of some small herbalist that's making tinctures for her clients or for a small uh, group of people, and she, can, she makes it herself so she can charge a reasonable price retail. She can buy from a local small producer or something. Otherwise, the economics don't work. So I realized that um, early on. So when I went to China, one of the issues was I want to find mushroom producers because I started my business in 1989 uh, selling medicinal mushrooms into the supplement industry. No company in the United States had mushrooms in their supplement line. You know, echinacea and ginseng and ginkgo, all of those different herbal products out there, nobody was selling um, medicinal mushrooms. So, so for me, it was kind of like, okay, A, I'm going to have to go to China, grow my mushrooms there, and process them and bring them over. And B, I've got to educate a lot of companies as well as a lot of people out there that mushrooms have functional benefits uh, as well as really good nutritional benefits. And, and yes, 
Let me tell you, I've seen changes in China that are monumental because when I was first there, it was totally into the teardown stage. Everything was being torn down and rebuilt and as a brand new building, a brand new factory. Uh, today, they have freeways better than anything we've got. Today in China, I ride around on trains, high-speed rail going 300 kilometers an hour, brand new, comfortable trains. It's night and day. So, so the 90s was really a, a period of organi organizing production and, and finding partners that could organize um, producing mushrooms for me, finding a, a good processor that could pr process all of those mushrooms into an extract powder. I'm not going to ship fresh mushrooms or even dried mushrooms back to North America. No, we process it into extracts. And one, you know, one of the things too is since 1992, my company's been organic, cer organically certified. I believe in that. So in 1997, I took OCIA, one of the largest certifiers in the U.S., to China with me. And we had the very first organic certification workshop for mushrooms in China, 1997. So, yeah, China, it's a big part of it. And why not? I mean, look, do you know that when, you, when it comes to, like, bringing a mushroom into cultivation. Dennis, it's a huge deal to bring a, a new mushroom into cultivation. Oh yeah, sure, you can maybe grow a lot of mushrooms in culture and, and maybe you'll get a few mushrooms to grow on something, but to actually develop a cultivar and to then be able to produce that commercially on a vast scale. And they just recently did that with Cordyceps militaris. God, what an amazing feat that is. And that just, to me, demonstrates the intelligence, the, the number of people working in the field, and the fact that they are so organized that they can take this from pilot scale up to producing tons and tons of this mushroom every year. It's fascinating, and specifically with the Cordyceps, that's so timely. We've had a micropreneur on the podcast by the name of Hamilton Pevic, who is married into a Nepali family and went on a wild cordyceps hunt for a couple weeks with his brother-in-law. So we got into the economics and the dynamics of the wild cordyceps trade and how it's putting a lot of strain on the environment because people are figuring out you can make enough money for the whole year by going out and finding a couple of these caterpillar fungus per day. And apparently, China now has the technology, from what I understand, to cultivate Cordyceps sinensis. And they're mixing in cultivated Cordyceps sinensis with the wild trade to keep the price high. But I think that's very interesting because it has the intersection of sort of geopolitics and socioeconomics and marginalized communities, etc. But yes, the short answer, I suppose, to relieving the strain on overharvesting is just more cultivation. Oh, you know, it absolutely is. And look, now the other side of this too, which is uh, a negative for me, is that when you have uh, something like the wild cordyceps sinensis, and all of a sudden the demand grows and the price grows with it, then you have not only tremendous uh, pressure on harvesting this, but you also have issues of 
whose territory is this? And I don't know if you're aware of it, but about 10 years ago, a group of locals went out and challenged some interlopers coming in to, to harvest cordyceps in their area, and actually six people were killed. So, so and, and the other side of that that I don't like is that it distorts the local economy. I don't believe that it's a good thing that people can go out wildcraft and get a lot of money for wildcrafting because ultimately all that does is drive those wild cordyceps to the point where there's fewer and fewer and fewer and, and, and um, ultimately uh, to me that that is just a issue of either like in in France where this same thing happened to the Perigord truffle where they were there was 200 tons coming out of there in the late 1800s and 1900s today there are 9 tons of of wild plus commercial from commercial tree farms to grow it so you can put so much pressure on there that the actual amount coming out becomes really low. And that's why for me, I favor cultivation. Look, cultivation of mushrooms is one of the most amazing ways to convert waste agricultural products and resources into a high quality food and break down those lignocellulosic materials into something that actually can be put into the soil either as something for soil structure or also amendment of the soil with, with certain nutrients. So mushroom growing is a wonderful thing. And the fact now that we can grow Cordyceps militaris, which has been used interchangeably with Sinensis. Sinensis, for those people that don't know it, is, is actually in, in China called caterpillar fungus because you actually have the caterpillar still attached to the cordyceps, and that the two together are part of the product. Whereas with cordyceps militaris, we have simply the mushroom, no insect involved. I tried to introduce cordyceps sinensis to the market in the United States in 1991. You know what companies told me, Dennis? They said, oh, sorry, our customers are not going to eat caterpillars. And not only that, they're vegetarian. <laughs> how things change, how quickly they change. And, you know, I'd love to shift gears to talking about something we briefly brought up earlier, which is about quality control. Because as the West, as the United States and Europe, Australia, etc., starts to catch fungi fever and mushroom mania, there's a flood of new products and supplements coming to the market and in my understanding, there's no agreed upon set of standards. Maybe there are, but they're certainly not publicized or published on a lot of these products. And I've seen an article, which I'll try to link to the episode if I find it, about random testing and supermarkets of different functional mushroom products that didn't actually have the active compounds they were claiming they had in them. So 
It's just sort of this gold rush that a lot of people are cashing in on. And as an example or an illustration of this narrative and kind of the clashes is the whole fruiting body versus mycelium narrative that a lot of people are, are peddling different angles to it. I'm sure you know a lot more about that than myself and a lot of our listeners. But what I'm curious about is it's my understanding that Namex was instrumental in introducing a set of standards and quality control in order to be able to verify the efficacy and the potency of the compounds in your extract. So can you tell us a little bit about the quality control and some of the standards that are in place? And if this is something that might be universally adopted in the U.S., or is that too much to wish for? In, in 2015, I did a, a study. And in that study, I had 95 samples. And there were dried mushrooms. There were uh, some of our mushroom extracts. And then I went out on the internet and I bought 40 retail products that were manufactured um, and they were actually mycelium products that were grown on grain. Now, now, at that time, a lot of people didn't understand that whole aspect of it. And, and what it is, is that, like I was saying earlier, you cannot grow mushrooms in North America and put them into the supplement market, the economics don't work. So what happened was a lot of companies started to grow mycelium on sterilized grain. Now, in the mushroom industry, we just call that grain spawn. What you do is you grow out mycelium and then you put it on a carrier because you just can't grow out mycelium and go, oh, we got all this mycelium, let's mix it into something. It doesn't work that way. So you grow the mycelium on sterilized grain. They used to grow it on all sorts of different materials back in the 1920s. But in the 1930s, they, they figured out, oh, you could grow it on grain. And so each grain, like in a gallon, maybe you've got 3,000 grains. They get colonized with mycelium, which covers the grain. And now you have what we call grain spawn. So you can, you can basically take that myceliated grain, you can mix it into your substrate, which is what we call the growing media for growing mushrooms. You can mix it in and every one of those grains becomes like a seed. So the mycelium will grow off that grain into the food source, which in the case of agaricus is a compost. Other mushrooms, it would be a sawdust type of material. So, but... That's all done in a lab. It's a sterile culture situation. Well, a lot of companies just went, oh, gee, well, what if I just grew mycelium on that sterilized grain? And at the end of a grow out period of, let's say, 30, 40 days, I just take it out of our jar or bag or whatever. I lay it out on screens. I dry it. I grind it to a powder. And now I'm going to call that mushroom. So grain and all, because you cannot separate the mycelium from the grain. So what, what I knew was going on out there were a lot of companies were using this process and actually claiming that their product was mushroom. So I bought those 40 products of that type of fungal product and I tested them all with a test that was for beta-glucans. Beta-glucan is the important polysaccharide that makes mushrooms medicinal. If you do not have beta-glucans, it's not a medicinal mushroom. 
period. It's that simple. So this test also allowed me to see what are called alpha-glucans, which are starches. Mushrooms have no starch. Like us, mushrooms produce a small amount of glycogen as their storage carbohydrate. So here it is. I could measure the amount of beta-glucans in my mushroom samples and in these myceliated grain samples. Well, it turns out that mushrooms have anywhere from uh, 25 to 60% beta-glucan and a small amount of alpha, which is either the starches or the glycogen, like 1% or 2%, something like that. So 30 to 60 beta-glucan, uh, less than 1% or less than 5% alpha. It was the exact opposite of these myceliated grain products. They were around 5% beta-glucan and 30 to 60% alpha-glucan or essentially starch from all of the grain that was in those products. So they were actually selling products that were mostly grain powder. And, and a good example of that is you're familiar with tempeh, right? Tempeh is a real interesting product because it is cooked soybeans with fungal mycelium grown on it. So when you're eating tempeh, you're actually eating mycelium. It's very cool. Well, that's what these people are producing is they're producing a tempeh-like product. Sure, and you know, the whole myceliated grain versus fruiting body bit, our friend Alex Dorr from Mushroom Revival has a great analogy he uses. It's like making an apple pie. And when you buy an apple pie, you want the apples in it. But if you're buying the myceliated grain products, it's like they put the twigs, the roots, the leaves, everything in that apple pie. And you don't necessarily want that, especially when you're talking about the medicinal benefit of a functional mushroom product. So thank you for going into detail there. There are a lot of people, I think, who are starting to test their products because it's hopefully becoming just more in demand by the market, by people. For example, Mushroom Revival puts the QR code to their lab testing results for their products. And I'm sure Namex can provide all of the COAs and everything too. But there are a lot of products when you go into the Whole Foods where we're, we're kind of confused about what we're getting here. So th thank you for breaking that down in detail. It's very helpful. And along those lines, talking about all the different types of mushrooms that people put in their products, right? Rishi, lion's mane, cordyceps, those are three big ones that come to mind. Shiitake. I was in Telluride this year at the Telluride Mushroom Festival, and the renowned Canadian mycologist Robert Rogers told us about the Entrodia mushroom. So that's endemic to Taiwan, and it's my understanding that it's quite shrouded in secrecy at the corporate level. I asked a buddy who works for a high-profile mushroom cultivation operation if he could get me some, and he goes... I've got Entrodia, but I can't give a tissue culture to anyone. So I'm curious, is that Entrodia mushroom something you've worked with before or you're familiar with in China? Entrodia is really kind of a, an interesting fungus. And, and you know, from what I've seen, it, it hardly even has a real fruiting body that you could collect. It looks more like it's just something that coats the side of these specific trees. I, I've looked at the research on it. It, it looks pretty solid, but most of the products, uh, uh, Antrodia, because there is no real fruiting body that you can harvest, 
most of the antrodia out there is mycelium. I, I, I generally, you know, generally speaking, Dennis, I, I tell people, you know, you're probably better off staying away from mycelium products. And, and I say that because I sold Cordyceps mycelium products for 15 years because back in the 90s, because the price of wild cordyceps was going up, they developed cordyceps, but they grew it in liquid fermentation, meaning that they could harvest pure mycelium. And, and they sell hundreds of tons of that product in China today and in Asia. And once I got the ability to do better testing, I just found that the products that I, I could get of that cordyceps mycelia, and one of the important, of the major ones called CS4, that cordyceps mycelia, it was just not a great product all in all. So I, I, the same thing is with Antrodia. I really don't know enough about it or, you know, with the mycelium products, you're just not getting the same things you'd be getting as you would with an actual mushroom. I'm sure you've got your hands full already with the 10 to 12 functional mushrooms that you're working with, with Namex and everything else you've got going on. And I'd love to dive into what you're working on right now for a second. I told some people you were coming on the show and they're like, man, where does Namex go next? Like you established a global mass cultivation empire and are providing all these wholesale products to different companies and set industry standards and all kinds of cool stuff. And we're super honored to have you. But where does Namex go next? What are you working on now? What, what can you share with us? Well, well, you know, and that, that's really interesting because, you know, one of the things that I've had to do is like cut down the actual number of species we sell because you get to a point when, and it's like, What's the actual difference between a maitake and a shiitake or a shiitake and a tremella? Where, where do you draw the line? Because I've got a book called Icon, Icons of Medicinal Mushrooms uh, from China that lists 270 medicinal mushroom species. Well, obviously, you're not going to go there. So I, 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 at this point in time, one of the really cool things that we are doing is we are uh, in a development stage for producing mushroom vitamin D. And for those who are unaware, mushrooms do not have much vitamin D in them. But ergosterol, the fungal sterol, much like our cholesterol, when it is exposed to UV light, changes into vitamin D2. So we've got something that is... is um, not a, an animal-based vitamin D, uh, and it comes strictly from mushroom. And, and I, I'm just really stoked on that to be moving into vitamins from mushrooms. My God, I, I just thought, think that is so cool. The other thing that we're doing is we're, we can analyze our products for a compound called ergothionine. Ergothionine is um, in fungi, it, they are one of the categories of foods that produce high amounts. Very few animal products or vegetable products produce high levels of ergothionine, and it is something that has shown to be a very, very strong antioxidant. It seems to show up in lots of parts of our body, but we don't produce it. We have to get it externally. Mushrooms are a high source of it. So we, we actually have an ergothionine product that we are 
selling right now, but that particular product that we're selling comes from yeast. It's very, very expensive. You only take five milligrams a day, but I think it's a very important longevity supplement, and some people uh, actually think of it as a possible vitamin. So we're looking and we're testing. We have been testing all of our mushrooms now for for two years for ergothionine content, so we know which ones to target, and we're just looking at that as how we can possibly, from our actual mushrooms that we grow, um, be able to produce a little bit higher ergothionine product where we could get to that five milligram uh, amount through our mushroom extracts. That that. Um, yeast ergothionine that we're selling right now, I mean, God, I, I hate to say this, I think it's like ten or $15,000 a kilogram. I mean, it's just insanely expensive. So, so we're hoping to be able to produce that on a scale that will be, you know, more economical and will actually be from a basidiomycete rather than from a yeast. So, so that's another thing. But, but, the vitamin D thing, I mean, man, I'm, I'm totally stoked on that. And the other thing that we did here recently, which I really love, is we put out a product that had, um, I believe it is 400 milligrams of our mushroom extracts, um, 20, 30 milligrams of zinc, and um, 2,000 IUs of vitamin D. So it's actually a mushroom product with vitamin D and zinc. And, and that just sort of came to my mind two years ago with the start of the whole uh, virus. And I thought, you know what? I, I used to take zinc all the time. I used to take vitamin D all the time. Now the information is very clear. Vitamin D is so important, especially for viral um, um, virus effects. And, and so is zinc. And I thought, well, God, I, I'm going to make a product for myself <laughs> and, and also put it out in our product line. And so we call it D2Z, which is vitamin D2 plus zinc plus our mushroom extracts. And I, I take that every day as well as I take our ergothionine product. And I, I'm really keen on, on those. Awesome. Well, I'll be looking forward to trying some of that myself at some point. And before I let you go today, there's one question I'd love to throw your way since you've had almost 50 years of experience cultivating mushrooms and being involved in the mushroom industry. And as a micropreneur, we've got in our audience people at all levels. We've got people who are selling at farmer's markets, people who are uh, cultivating at scale, you know, people who are making mycelium leather, just all these awesome people working with fungi. And I'd love to know if you have any parting shots of like, overarching things that you've learned in your career or uh, maybe principles that you follow that helped you to get to where you are today? I know it's a broad question, but are there any parting shots you have for the audience of things that maybe helped you continue in such a prosperous career arc for so long? I guess one of the things I, I would tell people is follow your passion. Whatever it happens to be, follow your passion. You're not going to make a lot of money in the beginning, <laughs> but ultimately, ultimately, no matter what people do, if they do it well enough, somebody's going to come along and pay you to do it. And, and you know, if, if you're a mushroom grower, look, it's not easy because especially when you're a small scale cultivator, you are a babysitter. Not only that, 
mushrooms don't sleep. You know that. You've got to harvest them and you've got to get them to market. They will spoil on you. Not only that, you've got to get to scale to even be able to make more than the $2 an hour you're making now. <laughs> so it's, it's a tough slog. But in the beginning, when people are younger and, and they have the ability to do that and maybe they've got another job or something like that and they're very keen Man, it is so much fun. Uh, it's just wonderful living with them, watching them grow. Um, the issue becomes ultimately, how long can I continue to make $2 an hour? <laughs> you know, because you do have to scale up to a certain point. But again, uh, for me, look, the, the most valuable thing you have in your life is time. It's, it's your life. You can punch the clock or you can follow your passion. Wise words. Thank you so much, Jeff Chilton of Namex, for joining us on the Micropreneur Podcast. Huge fans of your work, and we wish you continued good fortune and prosperity. Thank you so much, Dennis. It's just been a pleasure being here talking to you. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many micropreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the Mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Mycopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, Willkommen. Bienvenidos. Welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.